we would all acknowledge that the situation is getting better. It's just at a glacial pace. I think that's what people are really waking up to. The guest on the Women in Leadership podcast today is Breed Horan of the 30% Club. We portray leadership as being something for which you require a cape. And by that, I mean that you need to be superhuman to be a business leader. I'm not one of the, the people who believe that. I think we're not superhuman, but you know nobody else is either. And I think very often people look up at the leadership of companies and they see this kind of image of somebody who is giving their all, you know, 150% of their life to their work. There is a, 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 a real level of commitment required, but there's also a level of control when you get to a serious senior level. Um, so I think we should be honest with people and with ourselves about what leadership requires. Breed has had an amazing, rewarding career herself, working in various positions, beginning as an actuary. Then she later worked in the pensions area and was eventually promoted to the position of Executive Director with Electric Ireland, where she led the transformation of the ESB's retail businesses from the regulated model to the fully competitive newly branded business Electric Ireland. Breed has always been a strong supporter of women, whatever their career choices. Where we have such a fall off in women uh, at leadership levels, clearly we're not getting the full benefit of the talent that women bring into the workforce. The 30% Club has as its motto, growth through diversity. And their goal when they were launched in the UK in 2010 was to aspire to 30% women on FTSE 100 boards by the end of 2015. The Irish 30% Club was founded in May 2014 and there are over 100 confirmed supporters at chair and CEO levels and the list of supporters is very impressive. However, they still have a long way to go. Breed told me about their progress to date and their plans for the future. I got involved uh, last year, last summer, when I was invited to join the steering committee and I did so because the 30% Club is about the belief that having better gender balance in business is good for business it's a business issue and I believe that really strongly where you know a number of years ago I would have believed it was about being fair to women obviously it is about being fair to women but actually the bigger uh, issue is that it is good for business and it's better for business to use all of its talent it's also hugely important to have diverse thinking at all levels of leadership and women bring that to the table. They have a different perspective and they have different experience in general than, than men do. And finally, if you have customers, which most businesses do, all businesses do in one form or another, uh, if you want to understand your customers, obviously 50% of the population are female. You need to have women in those leadership teams. So the 30% Club is about the fact that better gender balance is good for business and it's about bringing that conversation to business leaders. So far in Ireland we have engaged with well over 100 companies, we have about 110 supporters who are either the chairs or CEOs of leading Irish businesses uh, and those are people that believe that better gender balance will be good for business. You say that um, we tend to see a fall off of women um, kind of mid-career, why do you think that happens? Is it about childcare? Or what, what's behind all of that? I think there are many things behind it, Angie. And in reality, they probably differ from organisation to organisation. Uh, I think there are some common themes. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned family responsibilities. That's certainly part of it, but it's not all of it. Um, I think confidence is certainly part of it. 
but it's not all of it. And just on that confidence issue, that's something that really surprises me, given the level of education and qualifications that young women have and their apparent confidence as they come into the workforce. Something happens as they go through their working careers and that confidence seems to suffer setbacks at various stages. Um, I think it's also about climate and culture in an organisation. And what I would say to organisations is that they really need to look at themselves, um, understand what is happening, first of all. So lots of research reports have said, look at your own data, actually look at the patterns of women's employment, Uh, look at your hiring practices, the hiring outcomes, look at where you're recruiting from, Um, but also then look at at the experiences as people go through their careers, the pace at which people are progressing, the people at which uh, at which people are applying for progression. Uh, so there's lots of stages at which uh, women's participation falls off. Some of it is definitely around a reluctance perhaps to apply for, for progression, uh, but some of it equally is around finding it hard to get that progression. I think some of it is about culture. You know, very often you can talk about initiatives that actually help women to develop, and those are important, they really are. But sometimes you can put too much emphasis on fixing the women and you can forget the structural issues that can exist in a company. Um, I, I'm always amused when you, uh, if you go to an event that is primarily female and that there's one or two men, um, you will hear them always talk about, oh, this is, is so different and, and they find it challenging to be in a room or sitting at a table where the majority are female. Um, and yet that's the environment in which so many women have had to contend in business and in in all kinds of walks of life that women who were breaking their way through into more senior levels found themselves in uh, a very male culture and i think when when men are put in the reverse situation of finding themselves with a largely female group they find it challenging and so there's lots of different aspects what does the research say about the benefits of gender balance at leadership levels in organisations? There's, there's been a great deal of research um, and some of it relates to the actual financial results and the outcomes. You know, people can dispute this, but the balance of research would indicate that uh, companies that have more diverse leaderships have uh, better performance and better financial results. Uh, research would indicate that companies with more diverse leadership are more innovative and more creative and more inclusive. Um, And that research is very strong. What's interesting as well is that I would have tended to think that Ireland was uh, behind other countries in this respect. And in some ways we are. So if you look at the percentage of women on uh, the boards of listed companies in Ireland, for example, that's in around 11% against a European average of about 16%. On the other hand, um, we're not alone in that there are many companies that have a low percentage but also when you look at women in the leadership of business, um, so in the management levels rather than in the boards, we are certainly not alone and there is a global problem. So the 30% Club, for example, started in the UK but is also launched in the US uh, and in many other countries, Australia and so on. So this is a global phenomenon. This is something that, that is very widespread. Tell me about your own career. How did it start? How did you break into business? Well, I uh, joined Irish Life Assurance Company back in 1971, a very long time ago, as a school leaver to train as an actuary. Um, and that was a, a very interesting move at the time. That was how people trained as actuaries. Typically, they, they didn't go through the university route, which uh, is more common nowadays. 
and I trained there and uh, worked there to the late 70s when I went off and worked in industrial relations uh, for a period. And then I stopped work when I had my two sons, um, who are now obviously grown up and they were born in the, uh, the late 80s, mid 80s and late 80s. And uh, I went back to work uh, in 1990 into uh, actuarial consulting with KPMG, where I ultimately, well, shortly after that, I took over as the leader of the actuarial practice in KPMG. And I worked there to the late 1990s, 97, when I went to join ESB to manage their pension fund. Um, and I was there until I retired from there la- last year. So along the way, I got great opportunities. I was really, really lucky. Um, I had a number of non-executive roles, uh, which were um, really interesting and and contributed hugely to my learning. And in ESB, I got great opportunities. I became an executive director there, responsible for a range of businesses, and uh, ultimately became deputy chief executive uh, before I retired. That's some achievement. And all because you were good at the sums in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Well... You make it sound so easy. It was... It was easy at times. Um, it was really challenging at other times, really, really challenging. Um, but I had great support um, and I worked for great organisations. I think that that was I was very lucky and that wasn't through some great plan. None of it was through a great plan. But um, at the time I joined Irish Life, it was actually um, a semi-state company back in, in the uh, 70s. Later, after I had left, it was privatised, obviously, and then it went back into state ownership, and now it's back in the private sector again. So things change. KPMG was a wonderful organisation as well to work for, and indeed of ESB. I mean, I'm hugely proud of ESB and its achievements, as you can imagine. Uh, did you have mentorship or career guidance? Well, career guidance was very limited. I have to say that uh, I really knew nothing about what an actuary was when I applied uh, to become a trainee actuary. I had no idea, but it was a job where I knew that I enjoyed sums, as you put it, um, and I knew I would be paid from day one, and those two things were what attracted me, to be perfectly honest. So I came to Dublin and really had very little idea about career or career planning. Um, I was lucky along the way that I got the opportunities, and I suppose I had the courage to take them. And that that probably comes from a a strong family background. I think I would look back to my parents who were, you know, very understanding and very supportive uh, for all of my family. I have uh, three brothers and two sisters. And, you know, they treated us all as being really important and that they gave us a confidence that, you know, we could do and, and be whatever we wanted to be. That's a terrific uh, gift for any family to, to give their, their children, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, I suppose the most important job of a parent is to be a parent rather than a career advisor. Um, but I think that job of a parent is that safe base, ultimately, to believe in you and uh, to support you. And, you know, unfortunately, they, they're both um, dead now for many years, but they, they gave me a great sense of confidence and, and security in myself. And I think that helped. And then in my own family, I married a man who, John, is very supportive and who has always been really uh, strong in his support of my career and the belief that I can do whatever I want to do, um, sometimes much more than I would believe myself, to be honest. I think Cheryl Sandberg says that, and I know she lost her husband, but she said, you know, marry the right man. Um, I think you need to pick a partner. And I think that's the really important word, that it is a partnership. And whether that's about your career or about rearing your children or whatever 
life choices that you want to make, you need to make them in partnership. Absolutely, I, I totally agree with that. Tell me about working in the ESB because it's 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 an organisation we would think of as as, as dominated, well, run by engineers. Uh, Who would you think of being as men? I mean, was it a, a comfortable place to work as a woman, or did it make any difference at all? It was a fascinating place actually to join as a woman. ESB had introduced a lot of family-friendly policies uh, as far back as the 1990s. Uh, So before I had joined, they had had a report on gender balance and recommendations. The report was chaired by um, Dr Mary Redmond at the time. They instituted a lot of changes and that did make a huge difference. So at the time when the report was done in 1990, there were no women in senior management in ESB, which I think reflected very much the point that it was was and is um, necessarily very much filled with engineers. I mean, it it just needs a significant uh, leadership from uh, the engineering uh, cohort. But that was 1990. Uh, When I retired, the senior leadership, uh, senior management would have been about 20 to 25% female. So significant progress was made. And that was by introducing family-friendly options, you know, flexible working, uh, support for childcare, and so on over the years. But the engineering issue is still there and I know ESB was and still is working very hard to try and improve the number of girls taking up engineering. And I think again, going back to the 30% club, um, while we're active in relation to boards and the leadership of companies, we're also very conscious of that challenge about women in science, technology, engineering and maths. And, you know, we talk about the problem really existing from the classroom right through to the boardroom. So in the 30% Club, we will be seeking to collaborate with others in that whole technical space. I think go right back to gender stereotyping in school, subject choice. It's a very deep rooted issue. Uh, and, but I do think there's a lot can be done. Um, have you come across uh, unconscious bias training in any place that you've worked in and how did that work? No, in fact, we hadn't introduced it in ESB, although I think they are now looking at it. Um, and, and some of that is on foot of some of the work from the 30% Club, because this is something that we've been highlighting uh, very strongly. And it's interesting once you do look at your own unconscious biases, I think it's, a, it's an eye opener for all of us. So there's a, a test that you can take online at Harvard. Um, university test called the uh, implicit association test Uh, and I'd encourage anyone to actually go online and take that and you can test your biases in relation to gender but also in relation to things like age and race and ethnicity and so on and it is an eye-opener because it's you know it's an objective test of what your fundamental beliefs are so for all of us who have grown up in a world that really has shown the leadership positions are, are primarily or have been primarily held by, by men. It's no surprise that at an unconscious level we associate leadership with male qualities. Um, a friend of mine many years ago gave me a lovely uh, framed picture and it was uh, you know, one of these quotations and it was very simple. It said, uh, some leaders are born women. And you just have to pause every now and again and remind yourself that yes, lots of leaders are born women. We just need to find that leadership within the woman and to bring it out. Tell me a little bit more about the 30% Club. What is the ambition or what is the hope for the 30% Club? What do you want to do? Our main hope is to actually improve the gender balance in Irish business. So we are focused on business 
and we're focused on gender and, and unapologetically so. And I would be a believer in all forms of diversity and I would be a believer in diversity in all aspects of life. But the 30% Club, we have um, a focus on business and on gender. And one of the reasons for that is that, as I said earlier, 50% of the population are female. I believe if we can't actually have a business environment that is inclusive for women, then it's not likely to be inclusive for, for minority groups. Um, so the, the club is focused on engendering support among businesses for voluntary action to actually redress the balance. And I know there's a debate at times about a quota. Sometimes people mistake the fact that we're called the 30% club as a belief that we're calling for a 30% quota. That is not our belief. Uh, we actually believe that the appropriate action is to have a real engagement with business. And a quota in itself, in my belief, will not solve anything. It's much more deep-rooted than that. So we believe that action needs to be taken by businesses to address the leadership, but also the whole pipeline uh, and the development of women's careers as they go through the pipeline. Uh, and ultimately, that is what will bring change. When you're talking to what did you say? It's chief executives and deputy chief executives. What sort of advice do you give? And who, who's well, who? the, the supporters uh, of the club are either the chair or the CEO of an organisation. And in Ireland, we have also put in place uh, the council for the 30% club. So each chair or CEO who becomes a supporter nominates a representative from their business who attend council meetings. And the council meets about four times a year. That council meeting provides a forum for the exchange of information, uh, providing research, stimulating discussion, sharing experiences, uh, sharing career experiences. So our members are telling us that they want to have access to quality research. They want to hear what other companies are doing. They want to hear what companies have done, what has worked and what hasn't worked. And they also want to hear about the experiences of women and how they've progressed through their career. So we've had presentations on all kinds of topics, including unconscious bias, with a significant level of interest. In fact, it's a topic that we'll be coming back to uh, on other occasions because of the level of interest. Um, and we also have initiatives uh, already underway with a number of partners. So, for example, we have uh, launched scholarships with uh, the Irish Management Institute and with uh, UCD, and we now have a third one in development with DCU. And this is about actually creating an environment where women think about their own career development as well. So this isn't just about the individual women who will go on the scholarships, although that's a very positive outcome. But the real intention is to encourage women to think about their own development and to look at the opportunities that are there. And so we're very pleased to have, have the, our, those partners who are supporting us by, by providing scholarships. Uh, we're also uh, engaged with the Irish Management Institute in piloting a cross-company mentoring programme. And again, that's about supporting companies who want to have mentors uh, for women and men within their organisation, but with a balance to make sure that at least 50% of the, the participants are female. Uh, we're engaging in other collaborations with, uh, in order to have networking events and so on. So the club is very much about bringing people together and collaborating rather than what we do entirely on our own. Do you ever come across resistance from people in, in companies or, you know, from chief executives that you might have approached and they say, no, this isn't for us? Uh, well, to be honest, yes. Um, one or very few, actually, very few have, have taken that approach. And to be fair to them, 
where they have said, no, we won't sign up for now. It's an indication that they want to concentrate on what they're doing within the company. And that's fine. And, you know, there's really good work going on within companies. What we're finding, and it is the vast majority that we have approached, have been very enthusiastic. And what they welcome is the opportunity to actually engage with other companies and to see how other people are doing. So the realization that this is a broader problem than their own organization and that they don't necessarily have all the solutions themselves. Um, I think that's what people are really reaching out for is to to engage with others and to see how can we do this better? How can we accelerate things? Because I think we would all acknowledge that the situation is getting better. It's just at a glacial pace. I think that's what people are really waking up to is that, you know, we saw quite a lot of change, I suppose, through the 80s and the 90s. And there's a feeling that things have really slowed down now in terms of that pace of change. And what's that about? Have you any idea why it might have been have become so slow? Because I've heard that from other people that there is, you know, I think PwC say if it keeps changing at the current pace, it'll be another 100 years before we get to gender parity. That's actually quite alarming when you when you uh, presented like that. Um, there's a feeling that we've kind of plateaued. Um, and I think some of that is to do with family responsibilities. Um, that, you know, young women, when they get to the point of having um, their second and certainly even their third child, are finding it very difficult. So something needs to change. And I think one of the things that needs to change more than it has is the balance between men and women in the home so that this doesn't uh, remain exclusively the problem for, for women or the challenge for women. It shouldn't, I wouldn't like to describe children as a problem, but you know, it is a challenge to actually combine um, family life with uh, work life. And housework. Well, even practical things like housework or care of, of elderly relations. Yeah. You know, it's, there's all forms, or health challenges. You know, everybody, you, know, you do not know when you look at anyone in the workforce, you do not know what challenges they are facing in their personal life. And that's one thing that I've learned over many decades. Um, you know, people face different things at different times in their life. And certainly I know that I, I was hugely appreciative um, of the supports that I got at different times in my life. Partly one of the things that uh, John and I decided as a couple was that he would work part time when I went back into full time work. Uh, we lived out in the country at the time, so that was it was really, really important in terms of trying to combine two careers. But everybody makes their own uh, choices. But I think so. That I think that is part of why the pace has slowed. I think as well, we need to be careful that we portray leadership as being something for which you require a cape. And by that, I mean that you need to be superhuman to be a business leader. I'm not one of the the people who believe that. I think, you know, um, we're not superhuman, but, you know, nobody else is either. And I think very often people look up at the leadership of companies and they see this kind of image of somebody who is giving their all, you know, 150% of their life to their work. You know, there is a, a, a... a real level of commitment required but there's also a level of control when you get to a serious senior level um, so I think we should be honest with people and with ourselves about what leadership requires. What would you say to people who say well 30% is fine but we should be looking for 50% like ah, 50-50 does that ever get said to you? <laughs> well actually not, not said as often as I would like to hear it said because I think you're absolutely right of course if, if we had a balanced world it would be 50-50 um, um, but, you know, things never work out exactly like that. 
The 30% is an ambition that we at least get to there for a start, um, because if you look at percentages now, in many cases, they're they're below that. Although in others, to be fair, um, other sectors have got beyond uh, 30%. So, for example, in the public sector, public sector boards, um, I've seen various statistics, but people would point to a statistic of 34%, which is interesting. Uh, the commercial semi-state boards are 27% female. Um, the 30%, though, comes from an ambition to reach at least 30%. And the reason for the 30% is that there is research that indicates that in any group, if you're in a minority, it is when you reach 30% that the voice of that minority is heard in its own right and not heard as a minority. And I think for, again, going back to my example about being one woman in a room full of men, for anybody who has been in that situation, uh, of being the one male or indeed the one female, the one female voice or indeed the one male voice, then you do stand out. Whereas when you get to a point where about one third of the people in the room are either male or female, that disappears and it becomes a much more balanced conversation. That's actually the reasoning for the 30%. That's the rationale for the name, the 30% Club. It's to get to a point of critical mass. And I think that's really important. Who started the uh, 30% Club? It was started in the UK by a woman called Helena Morrissey. She's the chief executive of Newton Investment Managers, uh, which is a subsidiary of Bank of New York Mellon. And she started it from her dealings as an investment manager with companies where she was seeing male leadership all the time, uh, male boards and uh, male chief executives. And she believed uh, and believes very passionately that that is not good for business. Uh, she's a very impressive woman, a fantastic career herself, and has nine children. Um, so she's she's quite a role model for, for anybody looking to what women can do in their career. And then the idea was brought here by her colleagues in Bank of New York Mellon, uh, Carol Andrews and Anne Fogarty, I think, had a number of conversations with people here as to could this be uh, of interest here. And uh, Marie O'Connor from PwC, a part partner, in fact, the first female partner in PwC, uh, Marie uh, agreed to become the country lead here and she leads the steering committee. And uh, Carol and Marie approached people like myself and I actually was, was uh, very happy to get involved because I do think it's something that matters and I think it's something that we can actually make a difference on. Do you think you've achieved anything so far? What is your proudest achievement to date? Well, I suppose we started to approach uh, supporters in a very serious way uh, less than a year ago. We have now about 110 supporters, uh, including the leading Irish businesses, uh, the chief chairs or chief executives of leading Irish businesses. Um, in April, we announced our 100th supporter, who was the governor of the central bank, Patrick Conaghan. Our, our supporters are spread among Irish companies, Irish indigenous companies, uh, large uh, commercial semi-states, uh, other business organisations and many, many multinationals, you know, across the high tech sector, across financial services. So I think that uh, critical mass across Irish business is really impactful. And, you know, we've also reached out to other groups that are working uh, towards improving gender balance in business. Uh, so we had a really interesting uh, session with 20 other organisations a few weeks ago, just sharing our objectives and sharing our initiatives. And I think the, the great contribution that we can make is being a catalyst uh, for conversations and also then partnering with other people to make a, a difference. So we're not seeking to do what other people are doing. We're seeking to support and to um, 
accelerate what is happening already to some degree and where things are not happening to actually initiate them. Do you think there's ever a sort of a a box ticking exercise with these uh, senior people or do you think they are seriously engaged and committed to the ideals of the 30% club? I'm sure you can find individuals that are ticking boxes Angie to be honest you know you can never say that everybody is is fully passionate about this but bear in mind that the 30% club has been started with voluntary activity this is not a business we don't have a membership subscription Um, we're working with volunteers who are giving their time um, the organisations that are supporting us have come have stepped up with practical support in terms of hosting events and providing other forms of support whether it be scholarships uh, research DCU are, are conducting a major survey uh, for us on women in management so there's very practical support coming um, and I believe that the vast majority of people who've signed up are absolutely uh, committed to improving gender balance. I accept that many of us are struggling with what exactly will achieve this, but the first step is actually to be committed and to have an open conversation, and that's what we're about. You know, as a serious businesswoman yourself, with the the broad breadth of experience that you've had, what would be maybe three or four key pieces of advice you would give to women about stepping up to the plate in terms of leadership and putting themselves forward? That's a, that's a tricky enough question. Um, and I mean, there's lots of different pieces of advice that I would give. But I think one key piece is not to underestimate what they can do, you know, to, to actually realise that they can do way more than they think they can do. Um, and that it just takes time to get there. So, you know, I didn't have a great plan, um, but if I looked back when I was 18, if if I looked forward, I would have had no idea where I might have ended up. Uh, I think people have enormous talent, and the key thing is to take the next step, be willing to take the next step. And that sometimes feels a bit risky, um, but you know, I think when you step up, you'll be amazed at what you can find that you can do. Um, the other thing, and I've, I've quoted Voltaire, I think, uh, the French philosopher who was the, the, the original um, guy who said this, um, and I won't try and do it in French, but it basically is, do not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, and I think very often we wait for the ideal solution, the ideal career, um, you know, the ideal house, whatever it is in our lives, we're waiting for the ideal. Um, I'm a great believer in finding something that is better than your current situation whatever that be and taking a step towards that i think then the next step will emerge Uh, and i think sometimes women can hold themselves back by everything having to be perfect and uh, you know you mentioned earlier the fact that women sometimes uh, won't apply for a job because they feel that they don't have all of the qualifications that are needed in the job and i think that's a little bit of this letting the perfect get in the way of, of the good um, men don't seem to be so reluctant to take on a, a major challenge even if they haven't got all of the qualifications whereas women seem to to hold themselves back so I think be prepared to take that extra step and and uh, to go for it and you will grow into it um, and you will bring your own flavour to it and uh, your own growth path to it. I was at a, a talk given by Elizabeth Gilbert who wrote that book Eat, Pray, Love. Oh yes terrible film very good book (laughs) but she was talking about another book but she said she got great advice from her own mother something like along the line which you're saying who used to say done is better than good 
So don't wait for it to be perfect. We just do it. <laughs> uh, well, actually, and I, I think that's the great adaptation of the perfect. Don't let perfect be the enemy of, of uh, good. But I think uh, that's absolutely right. Don't let perfect be the enemy of done. Uh, and I do believe, and in, in leadership in business, I often uh, talked about the 80-20 rule that, you know, sometimes you can be inclined to wait for the 100% of information about something. And very often you can make the right decision based on 80% of the information, you know, and to the extent that you, you know, you're getting it wrong, you can adapt, you know, you're taking one step doesn't mean you can't change the direction for the next step. But momentum is really important. I've learned that in business, get things moving um, then then you can actually make progress. You don't make progress by standing still. Are there things that people do or don't that they should be watching out for in their careers? Well, I suppose we need to watch uh, our effect on other people. So that can be on male colleagues, for example. And I think it's important to try and bring male colleagues along so that they actually understand the impact that they're having on um, women's careers as well. I think that's really important. I've been struck at times by um, male leaders who whose attitudes change somewhat when their own daughters hit their late 20s and their 30s. That's very striking. And some men have spoken very openly about this, is that they have actually woken up to the challenges um, for women in the workforce when their own daughters started to experience those challenges. So I think that's that's one of the things. And one of my beliefs about mentoring, by the way, is that it's really good for a senior male leader to mentor a younger woman. and probably even more so if they're mentoring a young woman from a different organization because sometimes that conversation will be very honest and perhaps more honest than if the woman was within their own organization and it can sometimes open their eyes to issues that may be happening in their own organization but that actually aren't being brought to their attention but there's lots of other ways in which i think we all need to be careful about passing on those biases that we talked about earlier, those unconscious bias. You know, that can be in the workplace, uh, so we need to be really careful in making assumptions. I really have always tried to encourage um, women to have honest conversations with their bosses about their own thinking and about their careers. And of course, that requires trust um, on both sides. And it requires um, the manager in that situation not to make the assumption that if, if a woman is looking for flexibility, for example, at a particular point in her career or for reduced hours, that I would really hope that the, the manager in that situation would encourage them, you know, to think about that as a flexibility for a particular period and not necessarily that they are stepping off some kind of career ladder. And I think both sides need to be aware of that. The, the other space, I suppose, is within the family um, and that you know, there really is a challenge, I think, for parents to rear girls to feel powerful. And um, there's, there's the series, I and mean, I'm sure you've seen the manji of uh, ads by Always, a female product. Um, but they have some wonderful clips which are worth watching on uh, YouTube. Uh, the, the latest one that I watched a few days ago is uh, Unstoppable. And it's about rearing girls who genuinely can believe they're unstoppable. And I think that does start in the in the home at the very earliest stages. And whether I don't have daughters, um, I, I won't say sadly because I have two wonderful sons, but I don't have daughters. But I would hope that if I did, I would rear them to feel that they were unstoppable. And um, I think that's really important in terms of, of giving girls confidence. 
Um, but equally, uh, I have a daughter-in-law and uh, perhaps we'll have a second one in time. And I hope that I would not say anything to them that might discourage them or limit um, their own beliefs about, about what they can do in their lives. Uh, I think just within families, we do need to be really careful because a raised eyebrow or, you know, a, a question can sometimes undermine somebody's belief in what they can do or what they should be doing. And, you know, we mightn't intend it at all, but we just need to be careful. And I suppose, again, that can be countered by having open conversations, by actually talking about career ambitions and talking about what, what people want in their lives. Um, very often we skirt around these issues instead of actually talking about them. Are you optimistic about the future of women uh, in the workplace and in reaching 30 percent? Um, I must say I really am. When I look around the Ireland of today, and this is going to sound uh, you know, a bit trite, but when I look around the Ireland of today and I see, um, you know, women in the chair of some of the biggest Irish companies. So whether it's Vivian Jupp and CIE or Elvina Graham who's just been appointed as chair of ESB. And I, you know, I almost have to pinch myself. I think that is fantastic. So we can dwell for a long time on the fact that there are only 10% of, of the boards of listed companies are female, or we can actually look at the, the, the progress that's being made. Uh, look at the women leading uh, so many of our multinational companies here. You know, Katrina Hallahan, Anne O'Leary, Louise Phelan, the list goes on. It's phenomenal. And then when I look at, you know, the, the younger women, and those women are young but even younger who are coming up highly qualified um, very articulate uh, I have great hope I just think that we need to create a world where they can bring all of that talent to bear and I think it will be a much better world for both men and women um, it's not a case that this will be all to the benefit of women I really believe that for Ireland Inc there's a real opportunity uh, if you look at the skills shortages that are there in terms of IT and technology, if we just got the participation among women up to male levels, we could solve that. There are so many opportunities. And when you look at the creative industries, look at what young women are doing in, uh, in the creative industries or in the caring sector. Uh, you can really see the contribution that can be made. So we need to unleash that talent and we need to create an environment where it can thrive. And again, I suppose I think back to the 1970s and the early 80s. And I recall at that time the debate about men take, women taking the jobs that should be going to married men. Uh, and there was a belief that, you know, the sky would fall in if married women were allowed to work. And in fact, what happened when married women uh, were allowed to work was that there was higher prosperity and growth and it contributed hugely to Ireland's growth uh, in the following couple of decades. I believe the same can happen again in terms of women continuing to contribute. It's the same kind of challenge that we have with the ageing of the population. We look at these things sometimes entirely negatively, whereas in fact there are huge opportunities. So that's a very long answer to saying, yes, I am optimistic, but we can't be sanguine. We do need to make changes for all of these things to happen. That was Breed Horan of the 30% Club in Ireland. And it's great to know that there are good, strong women like her who are working on behalf of the next generation of women in leadership to remove some of the barriers that get in the way of women in their career aspirations. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company would like to sponsor the podcast, please do get in touch with us now via the website womeninleadership.ie or you can email us at info at womeninleadership.ie. 
If you'd like to comment on anything you hear or know of any woman you'd like to hear more about in a podcast, please get to your mobile phone, your keyboard or your tablet or iPad and email us with your suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. The address is info at womeninleadership.ie. Till the next time, goodbye. Goodbye.